This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. It seems like most people know someone who has Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. A grandparent, parent, spouse, partner, friend. For my guest, Dr. Sandeep Jahar, it was his father who had Alzheimer's. It was also his mother who had a form of dementia caused by Parkinson's disease. Dr. Jahar's new memoir, My Father's Brain, is about witnessing his parents' dementia from his perspective as a doctor, a son, sibling, and caregiver. There were several times Dr. Jahar, his sister, and his brother, who was also a doctor, disagreed about the best treatment for their parents, including when the time was right for hospice and when to let their father go. Dr. Jahar also writes about his quest to understand his father's brain and the brains of other patients afflicted with dementia. He says, dementia remains the only chronic and widespread medical scourge for which there are no effective treatments. Dr. Jahar is the director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. He was born in India and immigrated to the U.S. with his family when he was eight. They were allowed in under a new immigration law under the category of scientists and academics of exceptional ability. His father was a scientist who ran a wheat genetics lab and was a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Sandeep Jahar, welcome to Fresh Air. It's great to have you back again, and it's a book I think will help a lot of people. Um, Alzheimer's isn't just a memory disease. In its final stage, it leads to death. Can you explain why? Well, Alzheimer's uh, ravages the brain, as you know. I mean, it, it causes degeneration in many different parts of the brain, and one of the goals for me in understanding my father's journey um, and my journey through my father's illness was to understand what exactly happens in the brain because, you know, as a caregiver, uh, the times I was most frustrated was when my father seemed to behave in ways that were, you know, just totally irrational or just uh, sort of evaded my understanding, my comprehension. So one of the things that I learned, um, you know, is that Alzheimer's, tends to affect, at the beginning, uh, the hippocampus, uh, which is the area of the brain that is associated with um, the retention of current experiences. Basically, it's the part of the brain that creates long-term memories. And that was really what the initial symptom was in my father and a lot of patients with Alzheimer's, is that he couldn't recall what he'd had for lunch or he couldn't recall what he'd done that day. And, and so... Yes, I mean, Alzheimer's is really often thought to be a disease of memory, but you know, as the disease progresses away from the hippocampus, it affects, for example, the, the amygdala, which is right next to the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that is involved in processing emotions. So people with Alzheimer's uh, dementia often get uh, very emotionally uh, labile or they become upset over circumstances out of proportion to um, the actual uh, event. And uh, and then eventually the disease affects the cortex and it affects judgment and self-awareness. So one of the 
aspects of my journey that I try to convey in the book is uh, what exactly happens in the brain uh, and how caregivers can understand what's happening to their loved one um, through this sort of understanding. And the the point of it is to try to, um, you know, develop, uh, I guess, patience. Uh, you know, one of the things I regret the most is that, you know, though I'm a doctor, I really didn't understand dementia. I didn't really understand Alzheimer's. What were the first signs you noticed that your father was having cognitive problems? It happened fairly early on. I mean, before we knew that he had um, a disease, uh, I'd say probably back in maybe 2012, he would call me and say, you know, people at work wanted him to publish two papers a year, two scientific papers a year. And I said, oh, Dad, that's not a problem for you. He had published hundreds of papers in some of the top journals in the world. Uh, and, and so I said, you know, that's fine, Dad. You know, But he just felt very insecure about it. And he started spending a lot of time in, in, in his lab and seemingly wasn't getting anything done. And um, that was probably the beginning. But, you know, I was living far away. Uh, my brother and I lived in New York. My parents lived in Fargo, North Dakota. So that distance sort of made it hard for us to really follow what was going on. I, I only found out later that things were happening that were red flags. You know, my father lost his way home from his laboratory, a lab he'd been going to for 20 years. He lost his way home. Uh, you know, he just started having a harder time sort of being himself. So I, I would say that was probably a couple of years before he moved to Long Island to, to live closer to me and my brother. When you tried to point out to your father that he was having memory problems and cognition problems, he kept excusing it and denying it. How would he deny it? And and apparently that's actually a symptom of dementia is that you don't know that you're not yourself and you right. deny it. Right. So I think there are a couple of things. One, one is that I think a lot of people think that um, developing memory problems is normal. And so when I would tell him, Dad, you know, look, do you remember what you had for lunch? And he'd say, um, no, but you can't remember everything. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, really today and even through the ages have this sense that as you get older, memory declines. And it does. Uh, but there's a difference between sort of normal age-related, uh, you know, memory changes where you sort of forget um, the name of someone or you forget where you put your keys. And what my father was experiencing, which was much more uh, dramatic and uh, sort of malignant. And you're right. There is um, a part of the brain that Alzheimer's does affect um, in the frontal and parietal lobes, which is what's responsible for self-awareness, a sense that, that something is wrong. And when those areas are affected, people lose that sense of, well, you know, I am impaired. So your understanding or your comprehension of the disease is affected by the disease itself. It's sort of on a meta sort of level. And uh, that's exactly what happened to my father. I'd say very early on, he knew there was something wrong. I mean, he did move to Long Island. 
But as his disease progressed, he became more and more unaware of uh, how much it was affecting him. So you made sure your father had a cognitive test, and it showed that he had mild cognitive impairment. What does that mean? Was the doctor able to do anything for it besides saying mild cognitive impairment? It's interesting. You know, when he gave me that diagnosis, um, you know, even as a doctor, I didn't really know what it meant. I'm a cardiologist, and... um, and, of course, I knew a little bit about dementia. I had learned about it in medical school. But I didn't know what MCI was, mild cognitive impairment. But it's a sort of pre-dementia. Um, and, uh, you know, he said, look, you know, your dad took this mini mental status exam. Um, he got, I think, I think it was like 23 uh, or 25 points out of 30, depending on how the uh, neurologist decided to score it. And so... He's got some mild changes, and it may very well be Alzheimer's. We don't know. Um, But uh, I'm going to put him on some medicines to sort of bolster his memory because it was really uh, sort of what he called MCI of the amnestic type, which is just, you know, that it's primarily affecting his memory. And that's really what the main problem was at the beginning. So he said, I'm going to put him on some Aricept. I said, okay, that's fine. Um, But Aricept is like Tylenol for arthritis. It doesn't change the disease process. It just sort of mitigates some of the symptoms. And so my father started taking it, but, you know, his memory deterioration progressed. There are no good medications for Alzheimer's because researchers don't even know the cause. I mean, there's theories. There are theories that have been debunked. Um, Talk a little bit about why there aren't good medications yet. You know, Alzheimer's really remains a mystery. Uh, you know, I, I write in the book about how Alwa Alzheimer, who was a psychiatrist, uh, you know, first sort of discovered the uh, underlying, uh, what he thought were the underlying uh, brain changes associated with Alzheimer's, basically plaques, which are uh, accumulations of misfolded proteins, and tangles, which are uh, also pathological changes you know, inside neurons also associated with misfolded uh, proteins. And so he thought plaques and tangles were what caused Alzheimer's. And this, this was a sort of uh, paradigm that persisted through to the modern age. Uh, and so doctors, scientists tried to develop anti-amyloid drugs that would sort of rid the brain of these amyloid plaques. And the thought was, well, if, if that were uh, to happen, that cognition would improve. But most amyloid drugs haven't worked. Now, the one sort of exception, which has come about relatively recently, is a monoclonal antibody called lecanemab, uh, which the, the results were recently published that showed that there was some mild um, improvement in deterioration, if that makes sense. So there is a sort of deterioration from Alzheimer's, and the deterioration slowed in patients who got lecanemab. But they had to get it very early before they had, um, you know, major sort of brain uh, deterioration. Uh, So at this point, we don't know, is it just plaques and tangles? Or are plaques and tangles just a marker of some other process like inflammation, um, which 
has been shown to result in increases in the density of plaques and tangles. So is it neuroinflammation? Is it plaques and tangles? Is it viral infections? Um, there are studies to show that, that um, brains with Alzheimer's um, ha- have been infected with herpes viruses. Um, so that sort of raises a whole new question of could antibiotics be helpful in the mitigation uh, uh, treatment of, of Alzheimer's? So at this point, we don't really know the answers. And it's very frustrating because so many millions of people are affected by this disease, and we still don't really know what causes it. One of the issues you had with your father is, you know, in addition to memory lapses, he became disagreeable, argumentative, argumentative yeah. and disagreeable with you. And, oh, yeah. and you're right. I loved him, cared for him, and hated him, too. I want you to talk about the hated him, too, part. Yeah, it was really, really hard. You know, my father and I always had a very close relationship. Um, he was always, you know, a very serious guy, but he didn't really have much of a temper. And Alzheimer's really brought out certain aspects of his personality that were just very, very hard to take, very, very hard to understand. And, and you know, sort of uh, rolled up in that was that he didn't really understand what he was doing. He didn't have the awareness. So he would, like, um, verbally abuse his caregiver, um, a live-in aide that we hired. And I'd say, Dad, you made her cry again. What, what are you doing? And he's like, well... Whore is not a dirty word. He called her a two-bit whore. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he, I mean, he sometimes became violent. I mean, he threw orange juice in her face. Uh, he tried to hit her with, you know, a hanger. I mean, you know, this was not him. And dealing with his outbursts, and I would say this was sort of before I really understood um the kind of, let's say, physiology of Alzheimer's. I mean, we were sort of in the thick of it. Um, And I was just beginning to learn about the effects on the frontal and parietal lobes and how it affected awareness. But, you know, when he would sort of do some of these things, I thought he was just, like, putting me on. I was like, Dad, you know, he was my brilliant father. And he was acting in such an unreasonable way. And I just... I had a very hard time coping with it. And so, yeah, I loved him. You know, I wanted him to get better. I knew he wouldn't um, because the disease wins in the end. But, yeah, I mean, I loved him, but there were times when I hated him too. Because your father eventually started losing so much memory and so much uh, a sense of who he was, you and your siblings found yourselves sometimes just ignoring him if you were all, say, at the table together. Yeah. And you felt really bad about that. I mean, there were times, too, that you were in the middle of a conversation or an argument with him that was important, that was not finished yet, but you had to go and show up at the hospital. You had patients waiting for you. So that that kind of decision about how to break away, I mean, at that point, you can't be patient like, you have a responsibility to your patients, you know, to, to the people who are sick, who you're their doctor, you're their cardiologist. So how would you reconcile that? 
it was it was a, it was a balancing act every single day. You know, how much time do I spend with my father? How much time do I spend at work? Um, and I'm not alone in that. You know, there are what, fifteen to twenty million uh, family caregivers for uh, elderly people, many of whom have dementia, and you know, a lot of them are also working, trying to make their careers, trying to keep up with their um, their families, their children, and really taking care of someone with dementia honestly is a full-time job. Uh, if you don't have the resources to pay for um, someone to help, and the government really provides very little help, uh, then you have to do it yourself. And, uh, and it can really affect... Um, your relationships with other people, with your colleagues, with with family members. So um, it was a constant balancing act for me and and for my brother, who's also a, a physician. So we would like stagger our call schedule, our hospital call schedules, uh, so that someone could be you know around him or with him on the weekends, you know. But it was just a constant sort of uh, compromise. How many years did your father need a caregiver before he died? Well, uh, I would say five. Mm-hmm. Five, yeah. But but before that, my mother, who was declining from Parkinson's, she had caregivers uh, who really weren't there for my father. Um, but after she died in 2016, then her last caregiver just stayed on um, and took care of my father. And that was for five years. So even though you and your siblings made major decisions with consensus, um, did you um, divide up responsibilities for caregiving? Um, Like, was one of you looking after finances and another being the lead person in coordinating the caregiving uh, or being more physically present with your father? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, all those things. I mean, we were lucky that we were three siblings, and there's so much work to be done, and we really divided up the tasks. So my sister lived in uh, Minneapolis. So my brother and I really were tasked with the sort of the most of the caregiving. But whenever my sister would visit, she would, like, you know, take care of my mother, bathe her, and so on. Um, my brother took care of finances um, and uh, sort of the— House repairs, you know, keeping, making sure that there was uh, someone coming to mow the lawn, and uh, you know, paying the bills and so on. And and I think for me, you know, because my father and I were so similar in many in many ways growing up, and we were close, that I think I just spent more time with him, you know, just sort of visiting and kind of sitting with him, and um, so and and that was an equally important part of caregiving. Is just just spending time, you know, and with with the person who's who's suffering. Well, we need to take another break here, so let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Sandeep Jahar. His new memoir is called "My Father's Brain." Dr. Jahar is a cardiologist, but he tried to understand what was going on with his father's Alzheimer's, both on a personal level and on a scientific level. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. 
Don't miss the new docu-series Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to my interview with Dr. Sandeep Jahar, author of the new memoir, My Father's Brain, Life in the Shadow of Alzheimer's. It's about how Alzheimer's transformed his father and their relationship. It's also about what researchers know so far about Alzheimer's, its causes, its impact on the brain, and why there is not yet an effective treatment. Dr. Jahar is a cardiologist who directs the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. One of the issues you had to deal with, and your siblings, because you have two siblings, had to deal with it too, is if your father was delusional, whether it meant thinking he could do something that he couldn't, or thinking that the caregiver was actually stealing his money, or, you know, was a whore, or whatever, you had to decide whether to go along with his delusions, because you couldn't really shake them, you know, or try to convince him, no, you're wrong. It's dangerous for you to do that. Here's why you can't do that anymore. Um, and I think it's fair to say that you and your siblings often disagreed about what the best approach to that was. Can you talk about where you stood on that and how, if at all, your perception of what to do changed over time? Yeah. I mean, this is a debate that all caregivers have, um, you know, caring for uh, family members with dementia is how much um, do you tell the truth? Um, I came from it initially from the perspective of a doctor who had been trained in sort of the modern system where you don't act paternalistic. You don't um, uh, withhold bad news from patients. Um, you care with patients, not care for patients so much. You know, it's just, it's a new way of thinking, and I was trained in that way of thinking. Um, but with my father, it was very hard to sort of persist in that stance. Uh, at first, I just wanted to be straight with him. Um, uh, no, Dad, um, your caregiver, Hawinder, is getting paid. Uh, and no matter how much you don't want to pay her, we have to pay her because that's what 
you do in the world. You pay someone who's working for you. And for me, some of it was I just wanted to maintain connections with my father. I, 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 it was just, I felt it was a way to uphold his dignity, is to just be truthful with him and say, look, this is how things are, even if it upset him. But my, my siblings had a different approach. They said, look, it, the truth isn't worth it. Um, telling him the truth isn't worth it if it upsets him. Um, and so we had this struggle. Uh, and and it, that our struggle as caregivers really mirrored a larger struggle that has been going on in the dementia caregiving world for several decades, which is, you know, how much should you be truthful and um, orient patients with dementia to reality, your reality, the reality that you see, um, that most people see, or how much do you sort of validate their perspective and, um, you know, accept it and don't try to argue with them. And, um, and, and some would say, how much do you just lie and say, look, you know, like, Harvinder is not getting paid. She's going to work for free, <laughs> you know. You Which know, is what you ended up doing eventually. I did. I did. Because, you know, in the end, I realized that it just wasn't worth it. Um, well, the goal was to make it possible for her to stay without your father uh, accusing her of things. And the only way to do that was to say, oh, she's working for free. Um, so, you know, that lie enabled him to have care and enabled the caregiver to st- stay without feeling as threatened. Right, right. So, you know, you have to, I came to eventually understand, um, and this may be just common sense for a lot of caregivers, but for me as a doctor sort of trained in a certain way of thinking, it took longer. But are you lying for your own benefit? Are you lying for the benefit of the person you're caring for? And eventually... I reconciled myself with not telling the truth to my father because um, I, I, I realized it was it was to, to to help him because if his caregiver left, I mean, the reality was that he was going to end up in a, a locked memory unit, and I didn't want that. Uh, I I fought against that till the bitter bitter end, and uh, and he never went to. Uh, dementia unit. We, w- we managed to keep him at home for you know for the entirety of his uh, his his decline, um, which is something I really wanted. But uh, but it involved lies of uh, omission. You have two siblings, a brother and a sister, and there were times when you strenuously disagreed about what kind of assistance your father needed and when he needed it. Um, and so like. The first threshold for assistance is like when was it time to get a caregiver, and and then it was like should it be a caregiver or should it be assisted living? Um, what was the agreement that you had with your siblings about how a decision would finally be made? Did you all have to uh, finally agree on the action to take? Yeah, I mean, my my uh, elder brother had sort of this. Policy, he said. Look, um, we have to have consensus over these big decisions. So, he and my sister decided uh, that 
once the caregiver left, that my father had to go into a uh, you know in a nursing home or assisted living, and my sister was out looking and sort of scouting out uh, local assisted living places. But um, but I was always very resistant to that. I I didn't want to see my father in a place uh, like that. So that kind of disagreement sort of continued where I was kind of the odd man out. Um, eventually, when my father got very, very sick and uh, he was placed in hospice, there was a question of whether to continue um, giving, uh, you know, IV fluids uh, because he wasn't swallowing anymore. And that was really, really important to me. And my brother and sister disagreed. And my brother ended up saying at one point, we're going to go with the weakest link, <laughs> meaning I was the weakest link. Uh, and But, you know, he said, I think, rightly, that families break down over these kinds of issues. And, um, you know, he had seen it in his own family. Uh, and so he didn't want that to happen with us. So... Um, so he wanted us to have consensus. Let's talk about the disagreement about IV fluids at the end when he was in hospice. First of all, was it at home hospice or a hospice institution? It was at home. Mm-hmm. So the question was to continue giving him IV fluids, which would prolong his life, because if you don't have fluids, if you're not eating and you don't have fluids, uh, the fluids will prolong your life. And I think your brother and sister felt like it's past the point where you should prolong your father's life. You're just prolonging his suffering. Um, the hospice nurse agreed with your siblings, um, but you wanted to continue the IV and maybe even explore the possibility of antibiotics and, and further blood tests. Why did you want to keep doing that despite your siblings and the hospice nurse thinking that that was a bad idea? I think there were a couple of reasons. I mean, one is I didn't want to lose my father. You know, I wanted him to stay on this earth, you know, for as long as uh, as long as possible, even in the state he was in. But I think the larger issue was that I didn't know what he wanted. You know, he had um, expressed in a sort of advanced directive letter he'd written to my brother that if we become very impaired, uh, he was speaking of about him and my mother. We don't want any sort of extraordinary means to keep us uh, alive. And my brother focused on that. He said, that was our father's wish. And this is a man who would look at us and say, what are you doing? Like, I am defecating in the bed. This is not who I am. This is not what I want to be. And I understood that perspective. But for me, like, my father looked like he was trying to hold on. Um, at the end. At in the hospice. end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his, his perceptions or my perception of what he thought was meaningful um, changed. You know, when he wrote that letter, that advanced directive, he was a uh, well-known world-class scientist running a, a genetics lab. Obviously, he didn't want to end up, you know, bed-bound or, you know, but his, as his brain sort of shrank, so did his um, perspective about what 
constituted a meaningful life. I mean, I would take him out to lunch, and he would look genuinely joyful at times. He, you know, he, he enjoyed eating um, ice cream. He enjoyed um, spending time with his caregiver, uh, whom he eventually grew, grew to love. Um, you know, he, he liked listening to uh, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. You know, there were things that he enjoyed. And I, my argument with my siblings was um, that that was his wish back then. But how can we, uh, you know, deprive him of a chance to live when he's um, when it's not clear what he wants now? By the time he was in hospice, though, what was he capable of? I mean, I took him out to lunch uh, just four days before we enrolled him in hospice. He just took a, a tremendous downturn. Um, it was very, very quick, and uh, and I didn't know what caused it. And for me, that was very frustrating as a doctor. Uh, you know, what's the genesis of this decline? Um, you know, does he have an infection? Well, then we could give him antibiotics. Does he have, um, did he have COVID? Well, you know, uh, w- w- like, d- d- was it just, did he pick up a cold when we were out in the rain? Um, what is it? And I wanted to sort of investigate. Uh, and my brother's attitude was, what are you trying to save him for? Um, you know, he's declined so much. Uh, and the, the hospice nurse also felt the same way. Uh, you know, she said, she said that, uh, you know, you should respect uh, his wishes when he was able to express them because he can't express them now. Let's take another break here, and then there's more I want to talk with you about. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Sandeep Jahar. His new memoir is called My Father's Brain. We'll be back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This message comes from Pushkin. In the original audiobook, The Art of Small Talk, actresses and comedians Casey Wilson and Jessica St. Clair share six simple rules for how to engage in small talk. Available on Audible, Spotify, or wherever you get your audiobooks. Did you feel at all a sense of relief when your father died, that his struggle was over, that your struggles with him were over? I did. I did. Um, You know, it was very difficult. It was a very difficult struggle. Watching him go through that was the the most difficult thing I've ever been through. It was the hardest journey I've ever taken. Uh, And and as much as I fought it, fought his dying, uh, when it was over... Yeah there, yeah, there was a sense of relief. Do you think the ordeal with your father and with your mother who had Parkinson's changed you as a doctor? You have many terminal patients. Yeah. 
I mean, I think I'm more there. I'm more with the patients now than I maybe used to be. I have more uh, sympathy for um, the struggles at the end of life, the sort of emotional struggles. You know, before I went through this experience, I would see a lot of death. And but you know, for me, the sort of the the end of life was more like, well, you know, let's put the patient on dibutamine or or norepinephrine, and let's adjust this drip, and let's make sure they're covered with antibiotics, or let's talk about terminal extubation. I mean, it was all it's about it was about the mechanics. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think now I realize, uh, how difficult it is for family members. Um, so I have, um, you know, I think I spend more time with, uh, patients and family members near the end of death. And, uh, having gone through this experience, I realize how, how hard just even just the, the cessation of the patient's bodily processes, it just, it, it's, it's, they're so resistant to, 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 to being stopped. Uh, and, and as a family member watching it is um, just profoundly difficult. So I think I just have a, a better understanding of that. Yeah. When your father was near death and you and your siblings were trying to figure figure out whether to respect his his DNR, his living will that said he didn't want um, any extreme measures used to save his life, um, you wanted to investigate further what, what could be the cause of his decline. You wanted him to hold on longer. Do you have a DNR and have you rewritten it since your father's death? And have you rethought how seriously you want someone to take it if, for instance, like your father, you ended up with dementia and the quality of your life had changed, your ability to remember had changed, but you still seem to be able to find some joy in life? Like, how do you, how do you know how you're going to feel and how do you express your concerns in a living will or a DNR? Do I have a written DNR? No. Um, I probably should. And, uh, how come you don't, I don't know. I still feel like death (laughs) death is a ways away. Um, but I think what, what I do have is after having gone through this experience with my father, it's I've expressed to the people closest to me that, um, if I decline like him, uh, frankly, I, I would want, um, a uh, probably physician-assisted suicide. Do you not want your children to have to be caregivers? No. You know, it, it, it involves so much difficulty and pain and sacrifice uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want that. You know, my, my parents grew up in a culture where uh, sons took care of aging parents and it's just part of the culture of the you know, sort of Indian South Asian culture, um, but uh, yeah, I don't want that. I mean, it, it's it's almost a trope of sorts, but I, I don't want to be a burden to my family. 
Well, Dr. Jahar, I want to thank you so much for talking with us and for sharing your story with us. Um, you've, you've, you've been through a lot, and thank you for telling us about it. Thank you so much, Terry. It was great being with you. Dr. Sandeep Jahar is the author of the new memoir, My Father's Brain, Life in the Shadow of Alzheimer's. Dr. Jahar is a cardiologist and the director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. After we take a short break, John Powers will review the new film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's a political thriller about eco-sabotage. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. In the new political thriller, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, a motley band of crusaders decides to go after the oil industry in Texas. The movie's inspired by an influential book by the Swedish activist Andreas Malm. Our critic at large, John Power, says How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is now in theaters, is a surprisingly bold look at feelings that are very much of our moment. Back in 1975, Edward Abbey wrote The Monkey Wrench Gang, a groundbreaking novel about a group of outsiders who use sabotage to stop what they see as the environmental ruination of the American Southwest. At once rambunctious and deadly serious, this wonderful book achieved something hard to imagine today. It was embraced by both left and right for its story about citizens rebelling against a system that is wrecking the world. Nearly half a century on, Abby's concerns feel even more urgently prescient. More and more people are frustrated by society's inability, indeed unwillingness, to even slow down ecological disasters like climate change. We meet a collection of such folks in the hugely timely new political thriller, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. A fictional riff on the manifesto by Andreas Malm, the most compelling argument I've read for eco-sabotage, Daniel Goldhaber's lean, sleekly made movie tells a story of a modern-day monkey wrench gang who target an oil pipeline. The action begins with a young woman in a hoodie vandalizing an SUV and leaving a flyer that begins, Why I Sabotaged Your Property. Her name is Soshi, and she's played by Ariella Bearer, who co-wrote the script with Goldhaber and Jordan Seol. 
So she wants, she says, to attack the things that are killing us, and she becomes the catalyst for a cohort of like-minded people. As in a heist movie, we're introduced to them one by one. It's a mixed crew that includes the Native American bomb expert Michael, the military vet Dwayne, the idealistic college student Sean, and the party animal couple, who seem to care more about sex and drugs than anything else. There's also a lesbian pair, Theo, and Alicia, a skeptical community activist who's only come along to be with her leukemia-riddled partner. She's filled with doubts about the whole enterprise. The story itself unfolds along two tracks. On one, we follow the group's nerve-wracking operation in Texas, where they check out their target, rig up explosives, and then set about doing the deed. This is intercut with flashbacks, in which we learn what led each character to this drastic course of action— be it Theo getting cancer from a local refinery's toxic air, to Michael's rage at how native lands have been stolen, to Duane rebelling against having his 100-year-old family farm forcibly sold off to build a pipeline. Here, early on, Soshi and Sean, played by Marcus Scribner, ponder how to do something that might actually shake the oil industry. A refinery? No. Why? What do you mean, why? It's way too big. We could end up killing somebody or causing an ecological disaster. Sabotage is messy. Yeah, but we can't give the public a reason to invalidate us. What about destroying, like, a coal truck route or damaging roads? That's or... lame. We have to do something that would scare people. <laughs> what? Do you want to, like, kidnap an oil exec or blow up a private jet? What? We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big, like a refinery. What about Texas? That's where they set oil price benchmarks. If we cut off their supply or destroyed something even relatively small, it would really disrupt What do you know about Texas? I mean, what do you know about building a bomb? The abiding flaw of political movies is that the filmmakers are so busy promoting their beliefs that they forget to make a good movie. How to blow up a pipeline doesn't fall into that trap. Although unabashedly partisan, it doesn't preach, glamorize the eco-saboteurs, or bore us with long discussions about ethics and tactics. Yes, the group is a little too neatly chosen to be a microcosm of America. Yet the characters come alive. They're extremely well acted. And the action is tense, too. As in any scenario whose heroes must deal with explosives, I kept thinking of Georges Clouseau's nitroglycerin classic, The Wages of Fear. The action throbs with a white-knuckle sense of danger. Even if the crew isn't blown sky-high, they face prison, even death, for being terrorists. Now, How to Blow Up a Pipeline isn't the only recent work about this kind of action. In Kim Stanley Robinson's even harder-edged novel, The Ministry of the Future, activists use drones to down commercial airliners. Yet by movie standards, it's bold. It neither condemns Sochi and company, nor does it present eco-warriors as nutjobs, like Jesse Eisenberg in the film Night Moves, or Alexander Skarsgård in the East. On the contrary, the flashbacks make it clear that these are not mad ideologues or parody radicals, but ordinary people whose reasons we can sympathize with. In one of the flashbacks, a documentary filmmaker is interviewing Dwayne and his wife about losing their farm. When Duane asks him what he can do to help them, the filmmaker replies that what he does is tell stories that will show what's going on. How to Whoop a Pipeline suggests that the time for telling stories has passed. We already know what's going on. 
John Powers reviewed the new film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the Dominion Voting System's defamation lawsuit against Fox News, alleging Fox hosts and commentators knowingly made false statements about voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election, including false claims about Dominion voting machines. The trial is expected to begin next week. We'll talk with Jeremy Peters of The New York Times. He says this is the highest-profile case so far to test whether allies of Trump would be held accountable for spreading falsehoods about the election. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematic investing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.